John, we got a top flight guest this week, the president of baseball operations of the Los Angeles Dodgers, Andrew Friedman. Yes, Andrew Friedman, uh, one of the best, uh, I guess we could say, general managers, although he does have a higher title than that. But uh, many consider him the best in baseball right now and uh, seems to be proving out once again, as, uh, despite the fact that they're among the most injured teams. Uh, right now, they're the second best team in baseball, which is pretty good. Yeah, pretty amazing. Lots of injuries. Not all the young players they were banking on. They lowered their payroll. We'll ask him about all that. We'll ask him about Shohei Otani, Clayton Kershaw, the future of the Dodgers, etc. John and I will also talk about a column he wrote recently about the five most disappointing teams in the sport and how they look going forward. And of course, we'll play hit and error at the end if you stick with us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. John, uh, off a vacation to to join us on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. And I did it because I read this column by you this week, and it made me think about something. You wrote about the five most disappointing teams. And I thought one of the things that has come up very often this season when you and I have talked were at least for four of those teams. You put the White Sox in, but, you know, St. Louis, San Diego and the two New York teams. We spent a lot of this year asking, when are they going to fire? When are they going to start playing well? and play to the level that I think we all expected them to play. They were all predicted to make the playoffs. And that never happened this season for those four teams or for the White Sox. And just for you, you know, your, your order of most disappointing, uh, everyone should go read this, nypost.com, John's column last week, was Mets 1, Yankees 2, Cardinals 3, White Sox 4, Padres 5. I'm wondering if we could use that to spin it forward a little bit. We know these are the most disappointing teams of the season. Do you think any of these teams are well-positioned to make sure 2024 moving forward are not disappointing? Yeah, you know, I had the Mets first simply because they had the biggest payroll of all time and were very, very disappointing, as all four were. Uh, you know, I expected the White Sox to be at least an average team, and they weren't. I, the other four teams I thought would be really good. They all have losing records. San Diego, really the only one still battling for the playoffs. I, you know, to me uh, – I would pick two teams out of that. The one that has the most money is the Mets. So to me, money usually helps. This year it didn't help so much. And the one that's the most determined, at least in my mind, I'm sure they all will tell you how determined they are, is the Padres. They're off the charts determined. They will do anything, include losing a lot of money, which we all assume that they're doing. And they're not owned by somebody with $20 billion, not like that anybody else is beyond Steve Cohn. So to me, I'm going to go with Padres and Mets. You could go a different way. You could go up and down and scour their playoff lists and, or excuse me, their prospect lists and try to figure it out. Uh, to me, they all have some good prospects. None of them are off the charts. None of them are terrible. Uh, I do like certainly a couple of the Padres prospects. I like what the Mets did. So I'm going to say Mets and Padres are the best position going forward. So I I actually had the same two teams with like a kind of 1A or would it be 2A in this situation, the Cardinals, just because of the division. I still expect that division not to be spectacular next year, though maybe the Cubs could surprise us by spending some real cash in the offseason and differentiating themselves. The Brewers always seem to find a way to be good. Uh, but, but I was with you for the Mets and the Padres. So the one thing I think about is two of the teams on your list, and the Padres are one of them. I wonder if the Padres and the White Sox have absolutely no feel how to put a team together. They certainly know how to put talent together on the roster. I think what it's like a glittering toy, John. We look at those two teams and we say, wow, look at all the glittering toys. But does it work functionally together as a team? I'm 100% positive that over the years, the White Sox have never figured this out. I think we probably both have some admiration for A.J. Peller's ability to spot both amateur and perfect and major league talent. And, and he's put it together. Do you think he actually knows, like, then what's the grout to it? You know, we got the bricks, but we got the stuff that connects the bricks and turns them into a good, sustained, long-term team. Because I was with you. I think it's the Mets and the Padres. I think it's specifically just looking at whose talent carries over from next this year to next year. I would put San Diego one. Yeah, 
you know, those two teams that you mentioned, they, they feel like we're we're at a distance. We're not in that clubhouse. They, what you hear is that they have chemistry issues. Now, are they because the team's losing and now there are chemistry issues or the other way around? I mean, you hear that Tatis and Machado don't really get along. You know, obviously, they've got five superstars on the, that team. Does that help or hurt uh, in the long run? Uh, something is wrong there. I mean, obviously, they have been... I think unlucky, or is it about the chemistry? Uh, what are they, six and 19 in one run games, 0 and 10 in X training games? That's almost impossible. Almost impossible. So I, I think they're a little unlucky, too. So I, I, you know, I think that probably should be thrown in that equation where I think they're going to be better. But yeah, you're right. Amazing. Uh, the White Sox, were they unlucky in a sense? I mean, they, they made trades that were very logical. They got guys who we thought had big talent. Moncada, you hear he's been hurt all year and really hasn't talked about it but they've been under achievement from so many different places you know can you predict which players will be injury prone which players really have the heart you know is that it for the white Sox? is that the reason i i do think there's an issue there with the organization in terms of the scouting we've been hearing for at least i have for years that their scouting is not great you know they they loyalty is a great thing but uh, you know they've probably let people linger way too long in terms of at least the scouts. So, um, yeah, I, it, it's hard to say, but in terms of going forward again, I I'm sticking with the Mets and the Padres for now. I know the Yankees have had winning seasons every year for a generation of teams up until this year, but, uh, I'm not so convinced, uh, going forward, they're going to be great. I really not. Yeah. Let, uh, I definitely want to get to that. Cause we, it's funny. We mentioned, Four of the teams, we haven't mentioned the Yankees. But just to stick with San Diego for one second, because, again, I think both both of us are seeing this somewhat similarly about their talent collection. Do you suspect, I, I do, that Bob Melvin will not be the manager next year, that that will be kind of like a scapegoat move, maybe like what will happen in New York perhaps with Aaron Boone, where so, like there has to be some bloodletting kind of situation. And do you think at all not to rebuild – but to to reconfigure reconfigure this, do you see that any chance of either Soto or maybe even Tatis Jr. after he's rebuilt his value somewhat, them moving one or the other to kind of just shake it up, bring in a different group of guys? Maybe maybe there's some value in having two or three superstars, but more really good players than they have. Yeah, I mean we can't be shocked if any of the managers of any of these teams is let go. And I, you know, I don't have any inside information at this point on any of the five. Uh, Melvin obviously had a terrific year last year. Um, he has a great reputation. He did a great job in Oakland. Uh, obviously something is wrong this year. And I know the manager often takes the hit when there's a poor record in one run games, but for this team to have that run differential and to be still under 500, to have that talent, and really be on the real outskirts of the playoff race. Obviously, something went awry there, and I do think there's something related to the clubhouse going on. You know, I, I think Soto's the most likely to be traded. He's got a year to go before free agency. The other guys are signed for a decade, Tatis and Machado and Bogertz. Uh, so, you know, Soto's the one that probably is not going to sign there long term. At least that's what you hear and that maybe he'd prefer to be on the East Coast, as Trey Turner did, and it seems like a lot of guys have preferred that now. So um, that doesn't break up the – they got to figure out Tatis and Machado, get them together and resolve that, I think. That's that's the issue. But I, I don't see Tatis being traded. I, Machado's not going anywhere. I wouldn't, I wouldn't bank on Melvin either way. Could happen. And Soto, I, I think, you know, they're going to investigate a trade. I, I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah, you know, the the way the Mets solved their problem was they traded both Verlander and Scherzer. Maybe we'll get both Tatis and Machado. No, I'm sure they won't. The one thing I'll say about San Diego also is in a year where the Dodgers brought down their payroll and really a lot went wrong for the Dodgers this year, namely injury uh, uh, stuff. The fact that the Padres like didn't seize this moment in time, that can't look good for them because it feels like the Dodgers, are, they're going to win this division again easily. And they've regenerated somewhat. So I think that's problematic. That allows me to some degree, John, to flip to the Mets. I think the Mets looked at the Braves in some way and said, well, we ain't catching them anytime soon. Like, what can we do to make a real assault on them? 
And I think in previous shows, we've mentioned we liked what they did, which is they did something definitive. They said, let's do it. Having done something definitive, you know, I think if you line up next year with Lindor, Alonzo, Nimmo, McNeil, I think we like Alvarez, though he's struggling now late in the season. Maybe that's just mental, physical wear and tear after your first full season at age 21. And and the deep pockets of um, Cone, I actually think while they are saying we're going to have lower playoff odds, I assume they'll have lower playoff odds in the beginning of the year, but I don't see them as hopeless in 2024. No, I mean, they said they're going to be competitive. We'll take them at their word. They have a decent nucleus. I think they'll be fine. Uh, you know, are they going to be a favorite as they were this year? Probably not. I mean, look what they're doing right now. Um, so I think they were right to, to do what they did, did do. Maybe they're discovering something. Maybe DJ Stewart can be part of the mix. I mean, he's been fantastic. I don't know. We're not we're not in September yet. We're still in August. So he's facing. He can't be. This is this is like Jake Bowers a few weeks ago, right? Like yeah, I'm not. We'll no, no, nobody can defend. There are at late all. bloomers. There are late bloomers. I know they're few and far between. But you know, the guy. What does he hit? Like six, five home runs in his last to eighteen plate appearances. Maybe I said maybe. I, let's give him a maybe at least, Joel. Give him give him something. This is you know. I think the game is moving towards athletic and defense, and I wouldn't get conned by a Jake Bauer or DJ Stewart, who I don't see as athletes who help me on the bases or help me on defense. I think those guys are available on the outskirts every year. Like, look, maybe you'll hit one and that will be worth a lot. But that player, Billy McKinney, Greg Allen, Rafael Ortega, they're, they're available every year. I wouldn't fall in love with one right now. Um well, there's 40 games to go, so we'll find out. And I'm, I'm glad the Yankees are calling up uh, Pereira and Peraza, and we'll learn more about them. We've seen Peraza a bit, but we'll, they're going to be playing, I believe, every day, certainly regularly. And, uh, you know, I think that's a good move. Obviously, it's been a winning organization. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, we probably shouldn't give up on them, but you asked me to pick the team that I thought was best positioned going forward. And to me, it's the Padres and the Mets, but. I wouldn't. I'm not giving up on the Yankees, but uh, you know the new rules, the way that the the draft is now, you can't sign anybody internationally. You have a limit there. Uh, you know they've certainly made the rules uh, a little bit more difficult for the the big market teams, which I, I'm not blaming them. I th I think that's probably good to give the small market teams a greater opportunity. You know I I have some real concerns about the Yankees moving forward, John, because they haven't failed in a singular area. It isn't like, oh, you know, it's free agency or it's trades or it's injury or it's player development or it's international or it's draft. Like there's, this has been widespread failure. And so one of the things I'm curious about, and again, who knows if you could really read this in the last 30 plus games, to your point, they're bringing up Peraz and Pereira, is their history over the last 25 years is, they don't bring up good players from the minor leagues, or they bring up players who are very temporarily good. Miguel Andujar, Clint Frazier, Greg Bird. By the way, Luis Severino, you know? Uh, so I'm I mean, that, that's been one of their big failures, too, yes. is Severino. Clayber Torres is a fine player, but he's not the every you know, every year all-star that we Clayber thought Torres is be. a losing player. Okay, but he's, he's, a, he's, he's an he's, average Major League starting player, at least. At least for average. a second division team. Uh, and there are winning teams that have uh, Gleyber Torres, you know, he's not that bad that he's going to, he's going to kill your whole team. Uh, you know, I think he's a fine player, but he's not the all-star. My point was that he's not the all-star every year, all-star that we thought he was going to be. Gary Sanchez, he isn't either, although he is doing better with San Diego and Severino. I, I it's not even explainable. Uh, I'm sure someone's going to sign him to a big one-year deal next year and hope for the best because that arm is still terrific. I mean, I think this is one of the biggest failures that they've had is that these guys that they've brought up have gotten worse. I think that as much as these contracts that they handed out to Hicks and Severino and these and some in some cases to the free agents, LeMayhew and Rodon and the trades that they've made, which we know about Gallo and Montas. And uh, Man, the, you're mentioning a lot of, of stuff, John. This is they've what done a lot wrong, about them. But they've done to me. The big thing is. You know, if Glaber Torres was that guy who was hitting 30-something home runs and, and Gary Sanchez was a catcher who was hitting 30-something home runs and Severino was the number one pitcher, they'd have a good team. And none of that is true. Right. And because it's not true, I'm not exactly sure that how they 
flip it around, unless like Clark Schmidt and Volpe are starting a movement of, hey, we are going to bring up average to better than average to really good players from now on. And Pereira is really good and Peraza is really good. And at some point, Austin Wells and Spencer Jones and stuff like that's the way they get good because they're outside what used to be good, pretty good, especially when it came to trades, not free agency, unless they were going to the top of the pitching market. Uh, their trades have been awful. You highlighted this in a column recently also about like the moves that have really undermined them. John, I'm wondering to, to, to just wrap this up. Uh, is It's something I've been thinking about a lot with these teams. Two, two things in particular. I'll throw them both at you one at a time. My first one is the Mets, the Yankees, and the Padres. Those are the three highest payroll teams. I'm wondering, does the failure by these teams change the mind of how teams spend? And I don't, I'm not specifically talking about big payroll. I'm talking about allocation. Are you better off? You know, you mentioned the number of superstars on the Padres, for example. Are you better off like, yeah, go to 260, go to 270, go to 350, but spread it out more so you have more good players as opposed to just stars. I ha- I just wonder if the payroll allocation, especially these long, long contracts, which you know are going to go bad over some point pretty much, if this year in particular is going to turn off teams or once the frenzy starts in the offseason, the frenzy will be what it always is. Yeah, well, I mean, one year is one year, so it's a small sample size, even though it's 162 games. The rules did change this year, so maybe teams will look at it as something is different about this year and we need to get younger. And if you get younger, that will be something negative toward free agency. So I I do think it will change the mindset to a degree of some, but yeah, once the frenzy starts and obviously, well, Otani, you've got Otani at the top of the market, but the starting pitching market's pretty tempting. Everybody needs starting pitching and you've got a half dozen guys who are really top of the rotation starters this year. And I'm expecting them to all get big deals and, including Yamamoto from Japan. I know a lot of scouts are there right now watching him. And obviously here we have Nola, we have Urias, we've got Snell. Uh, Montgomery is looking really good with Texas right now. So uh, it's about a half dozen guys, and I expect them all get big bucks because really starting pitching is in demand. We saw that at the deadline. But I do think that there will be some mindset change uh, based on this year because of the new rules and the way things have developed. And I think part of that mindset is going to be more than ever, teams are going to think about allocation. I do. I think even within the frenzy, teams are going to think like, huh, maybe I should do two or three good plots. I'm not saying don't spend the money. The other one thing I was thinking about to wrap up the segment, John, you just hit on. The starting pitching marks would be fascinating because I was thinking about the other day because we, we both are in the, hey, how would the Mets get good next year? They probably need three starters, right? To go out in this marketplace and get three starters. By the way, the Cardinals probably need four starters. The Red Sox need two starters. The Dodgers need two starters. The, the you, you go through all the teams that are going to want to try to win next year, and we're talking anything from one to three or four starters. There's just not going to be enough to go around. And I think that market in particular, if, you know, like, like guys just sit and wait, we are going to see numbers that really blow us away, including, like you mentioned, Luis Severino on a one-year contract. I could see some teams saying, uh, I just don't want to get into this marketplace for four, five, six, what Jordan Montgomery or someone like that. Uh, I'll, I'm, our guys know how to fix Severino. Let's go do that. I, I think we have to be braced for starting pitching to go crazy this offseason. Right, and you could see why teams would say our guys could fix Severino, right? Because he throws you know, close to 100 miles an hour, and the Yankees have had problems with guys regressing. So I could see a lot of teams thinking, well, we're smarter. We can fix them. So I think he's going to do well. But the four or five guys at the top are really outstanding pitchers. And the value of a number one starter is still there, even though, you know, most starters don't throw more than six innings. There are a few that do. Obviously, uh, Alcantara, Valdez, Cole, uh, Scherzer, now that he's with Texas, uh, but there aren't that many who do, yet the value just keeps going up and up. I don't know if anybody's going to be $43 million a year other than Otani, who obviously will, but uh, they're going to be the price is going to be high for all those guys that we've mentioned. You know, one of the teams that's had a lot of uh, injury issues with their starting pitching this year is the Dodgers, and nevertheless, as we're doing this, they're coasting to yet another division title. The person who's the architect of that team is the baseball president of operations. That's Andrew Friedman, and he joins us next on the show with Joel Sherman and John Hayden.
back on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. And uh, we're very pleased to be joined by the president of baseball operations of the Los Angeles Dodgers, Andrew Friedman. Uh, Andrew uh, is about to, he's not going to say it until there's champagne pouring, but about to go nine for nine and making the playoffs, eight out of nine winning the NL West. They got a big lead over second place Giants. I think it's 12 and a half games as we're talking here. But Andrew, I wonder if the place to start was like, this was a season in which you took your payroll down. You took some shots with young players. Some of it worked. Some significant ones didn't. Uh, Vargas at second base, you took a shot with Noah Syndergaard. It didn't work. And just when I'm looking, you lead the major leagues in days of injuries. And a lot of that was your starting pitching. And yet here you are in first place comfortably again. We talk things like culture all the time. I'm wondering if you could, for our listeners, why are you guys overcoming this? What is it about the Dodger group that is able to overcome this? Um, that's a lot. It's uh, we're getting right into the, we're right out of the gates heavy here. I like. I, it. I, I never start slow. It's 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 fastball, fastball, fastball. My changeup is my fastball. Right. You had me on my front foot. I was expecting yes. something different, but I'm ready. Let's go. Yes. Um, I think the biggest thing is we have an organization of people who are on the same page and we'll argue and debate, but from our strength program to our training staff, to our coaches, to our front office, why guys are being acquired, um, you know, what levers we feel like we might be able to pull. Everyone is just in lockstep and in sync. It doesn't mean there's not a lot of disagreement along the way, but I think that helps. And then, for us, our goal is to put players in positions to succeed. So appreciating the things they do well, and then from a player development standpoint, even at the major league level, is continuing to target the areas where they're not as strong um, to help enhance that. And I think the fact that everyone is on the same page and they're not hearing conflicting information, I think some past success has helped um, with guys coming in and buying in. Um, and I think it's just about appreciating, you know, what guys do well, putting them in those positions to succeed. When you have success, confidence breeds from that. And I think our veteran players do an incredible job of taking in our young players. I've been around environments, I've seen, I've heard where young players come up and they're hazed and they're, you know, the veteran players give them a hard time. And so they're not really comfortable. And when they're comfortable, it's hard enough to make that adjustment from AAA to the major leagues. Um, and I think our guys do an incredible job of encouraging them to be themselves. And therefore, they're more comfortable. When they're more comfortable, they're more confident. And, you know, we've seen a lot of good this year. We've seen some things that haven't quite worked, um, which has value as well. Um, and for us, we talked about this a lot this offseason. You know, we felt like the public narrative was overblown, that this was a really, really good team. I think if you're comparing any team to our 2022 team, it's not going to look as good. My guess is that will be the most talented team I'm ever around in my career. Um, but that's not necessarily the standard. Um, and we felt like this team was every bit as talented as the 17, 18 Dodgers. You know, you go back. Uh, a few years and it was every bit as good and in those years also we had to work in young players and for us to be able to sustain success over a long period of time we have to be willing to do that we have to have the requisite depth behind it and this year just happened to be a few more similar to 2019 where we broke in a lot of guys it just happened to be more uh, some have worked out really well some have struggled which again still has value and we've had other guys really step up and, you know, Mookie and Freddie are just as good as it gets, which helps as well. You you answered part of this, but the, the thing that really uh, fascinates me about your team is that you're able to bring up guys from the minor leagues every year and um, almost to a man, they do well. You had a couple this year that haven't done quite as well, but certainly Outman and Miller have been really, really good. And this has been a trend uh, since you've been there. Uh, you know, obviously the, the veteran players, you have very good veteran players that have helped uh, bring them along. That's part of it. But is is there some secret sauce? Because, you know, obviously most of the teams that are drafting and developing and nobody's draft, develop, uh, drafted as low as you guys have over the past 10 years. 
Uh, the other ones that have been drafting down there have not been developing as well as you have. What, what's what's the secret to it? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look back, that's the thing that uh, I am most proud about because it has much further reach than any one year is what we are doing in the amateur international scouting markets, our pro scouting group, and then how it all ties together to player development. It's a cliche to have your scouts in lockstep with player development. Um, usually that's not the case. Usually there is finger pointing, which is human nature. If a guy doesn't work out, it's like, oh, well, they drafted the wrong player. They signed the wrong player. Um, I think the fact that we have so many different groups so well interconnected and working together, we know the things that we are good at and we know the things we're not as good at. And we try to lean into the things we're good at more often. Um, and, you know, you hit it. I think everything in the system that is currently the rules of Major League Baseball is designed for us to have a bottom five farm system. We pick at the bottom of the draft. We have less cap space. We have less international cap space. Uh, we're not trading away players as they reach, you know, a year to two to free agency because we're trying to win. Everything is geared for us, and we're geared to buy in July and trade away young players. So everything is designed for us to be at the bottom. And the fact that our farm system is as strong as it is, there are so many fingerprints on that, and so many people. You know, we've had we've lost a lot of really good employees over the last nine years. We averaged like forty to fifty permission requests in off season. Um, and people have had a hard time replicating it because it is the entire group. It is the way everyone is interconnected. It is the way that we are able to do things. It's not any one person. Um, there's not some master coach. Um, and so that then feeds into us developing players that I personally feel like at a really high uh, rate. And then our veteran players, Dave Roberts, our coaches, the way they've brought those guys into our environment appreciating how important they are, not just for now, but for the future um, and made them feel comfortable and confident, um, you know, has been a significant factor in the success we've had. I wonder to just to follow that up, you mentioned there's some stuff you do well and some stuff you do not as well. Well, what, what, what do you do well? What don't you do well and why? Um, I just, I, I meant more from like a player development standpoint, the players that we are able to reach and levers that we've been more successful pulling in the past than others, not necessarily something I want to billboard. Um, but <laughs> just the three of us, Andrew, nobody, listens. come on, just we're, we're just about done with this podcast. Nobody's listening. I mean, <laughs> um, and then other things that we haven't been as successful of pulling levers. So let's not pretend. And I think that happens a lot where an amateur scouting group, an international scouting group, a pro scout will write a report really convicted that if we just do this, this player is going to be unlocked and be a really talented player that will shine on the field. But if we're not good at it, it doesn't much matter. And so I think it's organizationally, we know what we're good at and the things we're not, we're trying to learn and get better at. You know, you always seem to pick up somebody helpful at the trade deadline. This year you picked up a half dozen guys who have all been basically helpful. They've all improved uh, on your team. Lance Lynn, most notably, at a six ERA, and he's won something with you guys. What did you see in Lynn that you made you think, you know, this really isn't the Lance Lynn that I know he can be? And he did say, Yes, on his no trade. I do want to ask you too about Eduardo Rodriguez. I think that surprised everybody. My impression is everybody expected him to say yes, but ultimately it's his choice. And I guess what they said was at the last minute, he, he said no uh, to L.A. and was the one person in the world who prefers Detroit to L.A. But that being said, were you as shocked as the rest of them, us about that? And did you expect this from Lynn? Um. I'll start with Eduardo. Um, yeah, but, you know, for us, we knew early in July that this was going to be a funky deadline. There were just a lot more teams in that, like, 20 to 60% playoff chance, and things were moving daily. Um, 
coupled with what we expected the supply to be, you know, usually they're impending free agents. Just so happened that most of the impending free agents happened to be on those kind of middle teams or teams that were, you know, in great position. And so we knew it was going to be a funky market. Um, and so as we were going through and prioritizing different guys and different fits, you know, the, the number one thing we were focused on was adding pitching, uh, starting pitching, starting pitching depth innings. We've had a lot of injuries. And once you get past the trade deadline, obviously it's way more difficult to access pitching. And so just thinking ahead of things that, you know, pre-morteming things that may be an issue that was first and foremost for us starting pitching and then less so uh, bullpen. We had kind of a higher bar there and then right-handed bats. We needed to add some balance to our lineup. Um, and so as we went through it, uh, you know, Eduardo Rodriguez and Lance Lynn were near the top of our list uh, in terms of guys that were that we expected to be available. And as good as Eduardo Rodriguez has been, we felt like there were some levers to pull that we could, you know, potentially help make them even better. You don't know. Obviously, Detroit's good at what they do. And, you know, there's risk in all of that. But we were excited about the potential of adding him to our group. It's hard for us to argue with someone saying that for family reasons, I can't do it. You know, it's hard to quibble with that. And, you know, obviously, we, selfishly, we were disappointed. But, again, that was his right. He had that negotiated into his contract uh, and exercised it. Andrew, uh, you mentioned uh, adding starting pitching. I think one of the interesting kind of shadows that's going over this season is if Walker Bueller makes it back to your team this season. He had Tommy John surgery, a second one. Those are usually now talking about more 18 months and he's probably at like about 13 now, right? 12, 13 months since his surgery. I wonder if you could update us where he is. Do you think he makes it back? And if so, like, how do you use him this season? Yeah, I am letting that kind of fall out. He is pushing hard because he's as good of a competitor as I've been around. Um, and so our thing is he is pushing hard. We're making sure the doctor and our training staff are in lockstep every step of the way. And so for me, it's either going to fall out and him being back at some point in September. And if so, if so, that's incredible, but I'm not trying, I'm trying not to let my mind go there because <clears throat> I want it to be, if it's, if it's right for Walker and we're not pushing it at all, uh, he is doing incredibly well. I know from the minute he could start his rehab process, he has attacked it uh, all with the mind of getting back in September to help us in October. Right when he got diagnosed, his mind immediately shifted to that. Um, but he has assured us that if there are any hiccups along the way, that you know we'll kick the can to next year. But so far, he's doing really well. Where this ends up, I don't know yet. You know, if 100%, I think you have the best uh, rotation in, in baseball, but there are questions about just about everybody. Uh, Urias, I think, has shown better signs lately, but I, I do want you to touch on where it stands with Urias. Certainly with Kershaw, is probably the best pitcher over the last 40 years or something like that. And Gonsolin uh, may not be as good with him, but uh, he was really good last year and looked pretty good in a recent start as well. So uh, could you touch on those three as well? Yeah, I think with uh, with Gantz, he's been battling through some stuff. Um, and to his credit, you know, the doctor was like, hey, you're battling through some stuff. It's pain management and symptoms. And he did his best to kind of gut it out for the team. And uh, there was some good in that and then some challenges, as you would expect with someone battling something. We all uh, have a great deal of respect for what he was trying to do. And appreciate it, but it just got to a point where it was really hard for him to kind of finish pitches and execute. So my guess is he'll be done for the year, but maybe this blow really helps and he's able to come back, uh, which would be great. Uh, Kirsch uh, has come back and been really good. It's funny, somehow Kirsch is underrated at this point, um, <laughs> which I don't understand. Obviously, he is a significant player for us in terms of 
um, you know, us getting to where we want to get. And we've kind of eased them back in in these two starts. And we'll continue to kind of just be pragmatic and prudent here as we continue to build and hopefully have him featured very strongly for prominently for us in October. Uh, Julio's just had a weird year. Um, you know, I don't know how much of it was ramping up for the WBC and whatever, but obviously he had the hamstring injury. Um, his stuff has definitely ticked up this August. His stuff has been really good. And it was just weird sequencing and some bad luck stuff that when he happened to hang a pitch, there were two guys on or, you know, he just wasn't getting away with anything, which obviously doesn't always play out that way. Um, so there was some bad luck, some stuff that had backed up some and some execution, but all that feels like it's in better order right now and really like the trend line and where he's going. Since you wouldn't tell us even something like the secret sauce for why you're do well with minor leaguers, I'm not expecting you to tell us that you're signing Shohei Otani at the end of this season, but certainly you guys have been associated with him. So I want to ask a larger picture question. Unless you want to tell me you're doing everything you can to sign Shohei Otani, we will not stop you from saying that on our show. But uh, when I think about how you've operated, you've been willing to spend a lot short term or less long-term uh, on guys like Freeman and Mookie kind of situations. Does Is there an Andrew Friedman philosophy that would stop you from doing the kind of mega deal it would take to get this done? No, I mean, I think my philosophy is not to have hard and fast rules about anything. Um, that is kind of my operating ethos. Uh, I think my... <clears throat> greatest strength is also my greatest weakness in that I see everything in gray. I don't see anything on extremes. Uh, so for me, everything is case by case. And, um, you know, I think when looking at bigger contracts and obviously we have a number of them, it's a little bit about how you space them out and time them. And the more you have, obviously the more good players you need, that are zero to three players. Uh, you need a really f strong farm system. Uh, and so a lot of it gets at organizational health in that moment as you forecast forward. Um, and so that's just so much more nuanced than, hey, uh, are we pro big deal, anti big deal? I mean, Mookie was a very large deal. <laughs> um, you know, Freddie was for age and AAV, but obviously it's been great. Um, but for us, everything is a case by case and how it kind of intertwines into uh, our current roster, our future roster, and just giving ourselves as much flexibility to be as good as we can be because we appreciate that it's hard to know what's going to happen today. It's even more difficult to know what's going to happen a year from now, two years from now. And so kicking the can and buying time and optionality on things for as long as you can, whether it's on a player or whatever it is, has a lot of value. And, you know, for us, I think being able to sustain this run and also have the future outlook that we have right now is something that is, you know, front and center for us in our minds and everything we do. And we've all seen a lot of large market teams have a really good run and a lot of success and then kind of fall off the cliff and take a while to build back up. And we feel like we owe it to our fans to not do that. Uh, my guess is if we do do that, that I'll be pumping gas uh, somewhere. But that's what drives us. And, you know, we're trying to be as good as we can be in the current year, but also keep us in position to be as good as we can be in future years as well. You know, that's one other thing that you've done really well is these big contracts have been for the right guy. Freeman and Betts are two out of probably the four MVP candidates this year. I mean, I guess Acuna probably leads, but Olsen being the other one. But uh, you've, you've signed uh, great players for your, for your big contracts. And um, I wanted to follow up on Otani. I know since you're a smart guy, you'll be able to handle it however you want, but uh, – I think I and many others, I'm not, I'm not alone, anointed you as a favorite for Otani 
because when we're just reading tea leaves, obviously he's not confiding in me in any way, nor is his agent confiding in me in any way. But uh, we know that last time you were probably ruled out because you didn't have the DH. Uh, he does seem like the West Coast, five out of its seven finalists were on the West Coast. And we presume, and just by seeing him and how he operates, that he wants to win. You have been the most consistently winning team in baseball over the last 10 years. So uh, is there any reason I shouldn't have been, or we shouldn't be anointing you as a favorite for Otani? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously it's a better question for him. I think he has put himself in this great position. I don't think people really know what the drivers are and, you know, it's a personal decision for him. He's put himself in the ultimate position to figure out exactly what he wants. Um, and, you know, we'll see what happens when we get to the off season. You, uh, you said something that uh, really always interested me andrew it's something i quote a lot over time you want one said, thing yeah uh well one of many but there's a champion for you okay. this is the yeah. champion thing that you, you you said you said i don't want to live in a world where only one team had a great season uh you you know you play 100 you, you talked about the idea of there needs to be joy along the ride great victories during the season winning a division winning rounds of the playoffs i wonder over time as you did win a championship. It was in the shortened year. But I think everyone, like John has pointed this out, like uh, I think everyone would look at your organization as a model organization. And yet it's hard to win the World Series, right? It's just hard to do. Do you still believe in that? And Or ultimately, you know, I'm going to be judged by how many World Series this team wins. And I better figure out if there's a way to increase the odds for that. Yeah, that's an existential question I don't know the answer to. I know that we are ultra competitive and want nothing more than to win a World Series in that year. And in years where we haven't, those three, five, ten days after are so difficult to get back on the horse. It's so daunting to even think about how you get back to where you just were you know, the morning of that deciding game um, and just how difficult it is and all the joys and successes along the way feel empty at that point. And it's hard to live in a world where there's one success and 29 failures, but I feel that way emotionally at the end of each year. Um, if we haven't won, I feel that way. Just doesn't feel right. Um, but it's ultimately why we do what we do is to win the world series. And so if you don't, by definition, that year was not a success and I'm not good at, you know, just the binary nature of, okay, yes, successful. No, not. There's still degrees of that. It provides some solace, but not a ton. So there's like a intellectual part of this that doesn't make sense to me for that to be the case, but emotionally I get it because I feel it. Um, and how that kind of all nets out, I don't know. I mean, I think it's easy after the fact to postmortem anything and that whatever was successful that year becomes, well, that's how you do it. And then the next year there's a different winner and you know, there hasn't been a repeat winner in a long time because of how difficult it is. And baseball is different than other sports. I'm not going to say it's a crapshoot because I think talent still really matters. But there are so many things that happen in the course of a baseball game that tends to even out over 162. But plays that have, you know, a really high out probability that on that play doesn't get made. And the sequencing of if a home run happens after that, or if it just happens with nobody on and another, in it. like there's a lot that plays into these things. I mean, the seventh inning of our game four against the Padres last year is a great example. Trace Thompson in the third inning made a catch that had like a 6% catch probability. It was an incredible play. And the seventh inning, 
a ball landed that had like a 72% catch probability and, you know, ball off the end of the bat, just later break. Uh, there was a ball that Freddie doesn't expect a right-handed hitter to block a ball. There were, and it all happened in the right, in the right sequence for the Padres. Beyond young, um, there was just so many different examples of things that, matters and it doesn't mean that talent doesn't matter but in the nba if your best player is lebron james you can give him the ball every possession if you want to in the last two minutes of a game and in baseball mookie and freddie are going to be able to bat one out of nine times our pitchers have a finite number of pitches they can throw you know and so it is a different sport in that respect but taking off my executive hat the theater that is October baseball is incredible. Well, you're going to play in that theater again uh, this season, Andrew. Uh, you've done, you and your group, uh, another excellent job under trying situations. You know, just in mentioning the injuries again, most injured days in the 2023 season is the Los Angeles Dodgers. And your team is heading to the playoffs once again. It's heading to an NL West title. And uh, John and I appreciate you joining us on the show. Thank you guys for having me on. John, what do you got this week, hit or error? Well, my hit or error is going to be both a hit and an error, but overall an error because there's nothing that's an error anymore in Major League Baseball. Everything <laughs> is a hit. And you know, you've noticed this too, right? I Nobody was saying it from the beginning of the year, and my conspiracy theory mine went to they want to build up batting average. Are they doing it this way? I don't know. I mean, there are conspiracy theories. I, I happen to think that a lot of these official scorers – are just, you know, I want to be friendly. I don't know. They're not being friendly to the pitchers. But, I mean, I was in Boston for the Mets series. That official score, everything was a hit. It was unreal. And I'm like, well, no wonder they have six guys hitting over 270. Yankees have one guy over 270. Judge, I don't even think he's qualified at this moment. So, Boston had six in their lineup, which is outstanding. I saw him against the Yankees now, obviously. So, they have a lot of good hitters. But I think – in many cases, these averages are getting inflated uh, unfairly. I don't know. Unnecessarily. I don't know what the rule is, but I've never seen it like this year where there's no errors. You can't make an error. It's always a hit. I wonder, John, should we be using modernity? We have all the the stat cast stuff where we should make a number. If it's a 60% chance of a hit or more, according to the data, make it like a remove. I hate to cost anybody their job. But as you're pointing out, these jobs aren't being done well. Like if we should just leave it to AI and stats cast to say what's a hit or an error or if it's hit or something. Look, because we, we have been calling stuff hits for years, John Lee. The fly ball to the center fielder and the sun gets in his eye. We call it a double. We we know that's not the pitcher's fault, right? Like that's not that should be a team error or something like that it's when an that error. happens. It's an error. But, the hitter but, shouldn't be rewarded and the pitcher shouldn't be punished. So right, two out of three. And yeah. we have and we have some data now to say if the ball is a regular fly ball to center field and it should be caught at 95% and it falls, instead of calling it a double, call it a team error. And if it's like whatever, just use the baseball stat cast stuff. I'm, yeah, I'm into blaming. I don't want a team error. I got to say that's an error on somebody. And I, I'm in favor of judgment. I just want better judgment. That's I'm uh, error son. Uh, I'm going to do a hit this week, John. And you mentioned this guy's name in the previous segment. And – I'm going to say what a hit Jordan Montgomery has been since he left the Yankees. The Yankees traded for Harrison Bader, who's been okay. He's a little bit to be like Labor Torres. They seem to be playing their own game too often. Instead of like the team game, they seem to like it's too boring for them. He's a fine player. But Jordan Montgomery is like, if you just keep him, you don't even need Carlos Rodon, right? Uh, he's out pitching him badly. Since leaving the Yankees, 36 starts. 210 and two-thirds innings, 3.12 ERA. He's a free agent this offseason. His agent is Scott Boris. I the, the at 31 last year, Jamison Tyon and and uh uh Montgomery will be 31 next year, like Tyon is this year. Tyon got four at 68. Left-handed Montgomery. I have to with pitching that's going to be needed. Does he get five years? Does he get up to a, as much as a hundred? Does he get twenty million a year, John? This feels like Jordan Montgomery, who we covered, and we have to stop thinking about him like that. He's a top starter in the major leagues now. 
Yeah, I'm bad at this, and, and I, I certainly think he's getting over 100 million. I mean, he's been great with Texas. Yeah, I didn't even mention him. And was great with every... St. Louis last year, helping them get right. to the playoffs. Now he's helping Texas. I didn't even mention him as the guys who regressed with the Yankees. They traded him before he regressed, and he went somewhere else and got better and then complained about the Yankees. I know the Yankees didn't like that and whatever, but maybe he had a point. I, you know, not sure about that 100%, but uh, it's another. What's the opposite of feather in your cap for the Yankees? It's an, another mistake uh, that they're making. And it's really, it's been quite a rough year in the Bronx. They're still drawing, though. I've been going out there, and they're 40,000 plus every game. Uh, amazing. They better have a lot of giveaways if they want that to uh, to continue. John, we, re- we saw, we saw the dark away. days. They're we saw the dark days, away. you know. Me and you were beat know. guys they in the early 90s. They love going out there. They don't mind paying the nineteen ninety nine for the uh, ninety nine burger. I I saw the line. I said I, I think there's more than ninety nine people on this line, so I'm I'm getting out. They only have ninety nine of them, I guess. But got the Bobby Flay burger, still solid, but fifteen bucks for the Bobby Flay burger. Fans love it. They can't get enough, no matter what the prices are, no matter how mediocre the team is. They're going to draw forever. So I don't. And will that discourage? The Yankees from spending, I'm not sure. I better not because uh, they they need to spend to win. I I I I've heard good things about Pereira. I think Peraza is pretty good. They're not going to save next year for them. I don't believe they're going to. Yeah, need- they're going to have to spend because they're about 18 players away from being a good team. <laughs> well, John, maybe not 18. They have no. Okay. They they don't have the Bobby Flay of baseball players right now. No. A hit and an advertisement. Good job, John. Uh, <laughs> And it's a good job for everyone who's uh, listening to the show, which is a podcast by the New York Post. Our producers, Andrew Hartz and Jake Brown, we thank them every week. They really do help us uh, navigate this well. Uh, Noon every Wednesday, this uh, podcast drops on the Yes app. Subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Give us a five-star rating. That does really help. And we're getting closer and closer to the end. The New York teams aren't going to make it to October, but we hope you keep making it to listen to the show with Joel Sherman and John Hayman.